Welcome to Faith FM. You're listening right across Australia in 87.6, 87.8 or 88 on the Faith FM network. It is a somewhat rainy Thursday morning here, but you are listening to The Breakfast Show with Lawson and... Lyle! <laughs> you messed it up. No, I said, said it right. You said the wrong words. I, that was you said correct. the wrong words. That no, was no, correct. No, That's no, how you do it. That's like it goes. Sh- like got it all backwards. Ah, oh, this is semantics. Semantics. My this is. Foot. <laughs> this anyway, is- <laughs> what are you grateful for this morning, Lyle? <laughs> I am grateful for. Ooh, let me think. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, is he really? See, this is this is me being caught off a little bit off guard. Usually, I I can sit here and think about what I'm thankful for while you spout forth what you're thankful for. But you know, the Lord just blesses in so many amazing yeah. ways. Um, I'm grateful that my father-in-law is planning to be here in a couple of weeks. Ah, that's so awesome. He is the most amazing father-in-law on the planet, and I am super excited to have him here. Mm, that's awesome. I married my wife so I could have him as a father-in-law. Dude, I think that's you. That's that's uh, that's how it goes. Well, not all the time, but yeah. Oh, dude, it was so funny. I was like, man, you're struggling what to be grateful for, but you're sitting here speaking on. You get paid to speak on radio. Like your wife produces the I've show. Already, that's a pretty. I've already been grateful for those things before. You can't say the same thing twice. Unlike some people around. Oh here well, who like who are always grateful for sushi, like every morning. <laughs> sushi. <laughs> <laughs> when was the last time? I don't even think I've ever said that in my life, Lyle. Uh, I don't think yeah, you're right. Ever. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Sun won't be going down for a while because the day has just begun here in Newcastle, but until the sun goes down, let's be praising God. Lawson, let's have a clue for our pentathlon quiz. What have you got for us? All right, for 100 points, what attitude of giving, according to the Apostle Paul, does God love? 0491 is the number to call if you know the answer. For 100 points, you can net yourself a Faith FM bookmark and bumper sticker, or you can get those points on the board, get every single question correct, and win every single prize. But again, that question was, what attitude of giving, according to the Apostle Paul, does God love? Okay. There you go. Give us a call if you know the answer. Let's uh, jump into positively different news this morning. Lawson, what have you got for us? Oh, dude, i got some epic stories here. I've got, like, such a hilarious story. Um, I've got a few funny ones. I'm just trying to decide. You know what? I'll do this one. I'll do this one first. Okay. So, there's church. It's in a town called Grimsby in Lincolnshire in the UK. And it's a big, like, 14th century cathedral. Not like a massive, massive one, but a pretty big one with, like, a clock tower and all that kind of stuff, you know. A church that would be previously, like, the centre of town. Um, Now, the minister who works there um, decided that he wanted to repair the clock because it hasn't been turning for, like, it hasn't been spinning, it hasn't been clocking, ticking over time. Ticking, hasn't been ticking. hasn't been ticking for 12 years. Okay. And he's like, you know, there's a big clock, it's a yeah, big clock tower. Yeah, going. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get this thing repaired. Um, and so we had two different engineers come in, um, that were like pretty high level dudes, um, that, yeah, he had them come in, assess the clock tower and was like, and they ultimately came to the conclusion, both of them, that, oh yeah, it'll, it'll cost around like 40, 50,000 pounds. Yeah, that's a fair chunk of money. That's like, you know, 75, 80 grand, something like that. Yep. And so they're all like, oh man, we can't afford this. We're a church. Like, this is, this is, this is massive. This is a huge undertaking. So uh, how old is this clock? Um, this church is a 14th century build, so okay, we're talking so like 600 old. years. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, so this is an old clock, but it's been spinning up until like literally ticking. 12 years. It's ticking. Up until 12 <laughs> years ago. 
But then, power of locals, 47-year-old cheesemaker Rick and 15-year-old, you know, the high school student Jay, they were like, well, why don't we take a look at the clock? Like, 50 grand, that's crazy. And so they go up. They, you know, they have a look at the bearings and the, the, the gears and whatnot, and they're like, oh, there's some dead pigeons stuck in them that they, they pull out. They get some WD-40 out. They're like, oh, man, it's kind of gunked up. They literally spray it with WD-40, and it starts spinning. <laughs> 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 $50,000 worth, 50,000 pounds worth of WD-40. That's right. That's right. So literally. This is what happens when you get engineers involved. Yeah. So, oh, no, dude, I offended it, the engineers this morning. No, I shouldn't say that. Well, I think, like, the idea from the engineers is like, oh, well, look. They the, were going to do a thorough rebuild. They're going to re- refurb the whole thing. Yeah, that's right. Um, which is Expensive. Which would be nice and expensive. Yeah. But they've got this thing going. Like, it's going perfectly. It's keeping time well just by pulling the dead pigeons out of the gears and spraying WD-40 giving it, all over Giving it a general clean-up. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's such an that's epic right. story. I love it. And, you know, the funny thing is, like, these two guys, like, aren't church members either. They're not, they're not members. They're not attending this church. They're just some boys from... They're just the, the locals from down the street. And now they're like, oh, you know, we gave it a grease up. We got it, got it done, got it going. Um, and they're like, hey, well, you know, we hope after saving the church like 40,000 pounds, they can invite us over for dinner or something like that. And it's like, what a perfect opportunity for ministry. You know, uh, I think it's something that, that is common, like something that I've seen anyway, something that I actually experienced when I became uh, a, you know, a Christian from being someone who wasn't Christian was obviously the, the Christian community I, I came into. But then uh, along with that, you know, ask, people asking me like, oh, hey, Lawson, can you get involved with this? Can you help this? Like literally this guy is, these guys just stumbled into doing some work for the church and now they want to be involved and spend time with the people there. So That's awesome. I think it, like the, the, in terms of the minister who's running who's running this chapel, like the the, the ministry's happening for him. Invite these guys over, have them for dinner, and um, yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> what a great way to uh, spread the gospel and get that's- the message out there, get the clock working. <laughs> that's right. Uh, in other news, oh, dude, I just realized I, I was reading something this morning that just made Europe seem. This is another European story. Just made Europe seem so cute. Just like, just so, just so like. Just so cute, just so like. Well, cute and Europe in the same sentence haven't been yeah. going around for the last week. Yeah, that's right. But then there's things that they do where I'm like, oh man, like you know, I live in Australia where it's like this kind of thing is is really hectic, and where, whereas in Europe, um, so I just want to share um, one of the primary methods for you know backburning at the moment in Europe. So in Italy, I, I shared a story that was similar to this a couple of weeks ago, but now it's kind of spread throughout Italy and France and whatnot is just hiring shepherds. They just hire shepherds and just get goats to go around eating all the underbrush so that they, you know, lower their risk of wildfires. Like in Australia... Just goats will eat anything. Yeah, that's right. But in Australia, like, we absolutely, like, I, I guess that would work, but our bush is so thick and dense and big. That's because we don't burn it often enough. But I don't think just that, like, this is literally, they've, like, got 60 shepherds across France who are doing this work of... Oh, that's a fantastic idea. The problem the problem in Australia is that we do have a very large continent, and the other problem right. is that goats in this country are a invasive species, whereas mm. there they are a native species. That's right. And so where they're a native species, they're going to be good for the environment. Where they're an invasive species, they're bad for the environment. Yeah, that's right. But it's just, dude, this guy is just... These these shepherds are just taking their goats around to eat everything, so they don't have to worry about backburning. But see, when we, it's a massive problem. When, when, I, when I lived in Tasmania, this is how we used to deal with 
blackberries because they just go nuts in Tasmania. Mm. I mean, we had a gully that was probably 100 feet deep and the whole thing was just full of blackberries. Wow. We had no idea what was in the gully. <laughs> it was like, oh, so we just fenced it off all around, all around the outside of it and put goats in there. They, they ate, they they ate, ate the blackberries, thorns and all, ate the lot, cleaned them out, <laughs> ate them so thoroughly that they died. Any any no any speck of green leaves that came onto them, they just gobbled them up. Ah, they loved it. They, went, they wouldn't even eat the grass in the paddock. They were like, oh, there's blackberries over there with thorns. Let's go and eat those instead. <laughs> it's like my tongue is hurting, but the blackberries <laughs> are worth it. That's awesome. Oh, and other news are coming out of Europe as well. This comes from Hamburg in Germany, which is a place that I've been to. It's the second biggest city in Germany, and it is a lovely, beautiful, amazing place. Um, they've set up this this store. It has a really interesting name. I, I had it here before. But they call it the IKEA of uh, used goods. They call it Still Stillbrook or something like this. Um, and essentially. Everything that's there, it's like, it's, I'm like, when you read that, it's like, okay, Ikea of used goods, what is this, like an op shop or something? No, basically, um, everything that goes in, that is about to go into landfill, first runs through this shop and is sorted out for things that they can take to, like, repair. So, it's literally things that you throw in the bin, like, all kinds of things, from, from furniture to teacups to, to whatever. Um, and they take all these things and they have a workshop where they repair them and then they sell them. Uh, which is a fantastic idea because, it, like, it, you know means that less things go into landfill, things are repurposed. But I guess my thought here is like, oh, you know, like op shops exist, but, oh, and by the way, this is fully run by the local council. Like the local council have like set up this shop and it's like, oh, but, you know, for the council to have such a big expenditure and put so many resources towards something like this, like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if this is uh like, you know, would it, would it, would it make money? Would it just cost them money? Like, is it, which is money is a big factor when it comes to, to waste and landfill and all these things. Um, but this shop annually, which is, you know, a nonprofit, but then like run by the government, um, makes between 300 and 500,000 euros a year. Wow. So it's profiting. It's profitable. It's a profitable venture where they're sending less things into landfill and more money into the local government's pocket and, I'm I'm just reading this. I'm like, dude, why don't we do that here? Like, what a win! Oh, that I, I'm all about that kind of stuff. Yeah, repurposing, recycle, repurpose. Yeah, and so like, just reading this, I'm like, I'm like, this is this is the perfect this is the perfect model right here. Like, it's it's economically viable. It works. I, I guess you know there is a big. Uh, um, investment that you'd have to put in to set up a facility with the ability to do this. Um, but man, with $500,000 a year coming in, like in profit, like you're going to pay that off. That, that's, that's a five year plan right there, like mm-hmm. easily. So, mm-hmm. oh, local Newcastle Council, like Macquarie Council, you've got something to do right here. This is an initiative that you can take on rather than, you know, just throwing everything in the Toronto dump, which is, you know, a, a spot that I frequent in the Toronto dump. I, I ride past there on my, my bicycle and motorbike a lot. Do you recycle stuff out of the Toronto dump? Oh, no. It's You're like, not allowed to. It's all which fenced is the, off. Which is the dumbest thing ever. It's the worst. I'm like always walking past there and I'm like, I'd like to hop this like, you know, three meter tall, four meter tall barbed wire fence, but. You know, I can't. Yeah. So that's a bummer. Back in the day when I was a kid, that was recycling was the best thing you do when you went to the dump. <laughs> it was kind of like another form of Bunnings, but you're not allowed to do that anymore. That's so awesome. It's crazy. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Yeah, Lawson, let's have the 200 point question for our quiz. 
For 200 points, when Solomon was gathering materials to build the temple, what sort of trees did he desire from Lebanon? 0491-064-669 is the number to call. For 200 points, you can win yourself an issue of Science Magazine, or you can get your points on the board and continue to sweep your way through the quiz. But again, that question was, when Solomon was gathering materials to build the temple, what sort of trees did he desire from Lebanon? 0491-064-669. All right. So turning to more serious news, uh, we've got some interesting stories here to talk about. So one of the things that I've always been fascinated with is the role of religion in war. Yes. Uh, war, you know, the study of history is the study of war in many, in, in many ways. And mm. religion has played a role in, I'm going to say religion has played a role in every war that's ever been fought. Now, you might be able to find some examples where that is not the case. Uh, I would love to hear from you. And uh, you might be right. The Emu War. Yes, the Great <laughs> Emu War of, uh, was it 1934? Probably, <laughs> probably didn't play it. Lawson had to go there. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Had to go there. I, I, well, I just had to stump you. That's, like, my job. <laughs> you just like talking about the Great Emu War. That's right. It's uh, but anyway. Good subject. The Great Emu War aside, <laughs> let's talk about wars between human beings. And uh, with wars between human beings... As I say, I'd like to hear from you if there is a war that has not had religion pretty much front and centre in it. And so, of course, with the war breaking out in Ukraine, it's been one of those things I've been very interested to look at and look at the role of religion. Okay, so you've just got Bishop Zoria of uh, the Ukraine who has come out to identify uh, the Antichrist. He's officially named the Antichrist. Oh, is it you? No. I mean, yeah? Okay. It's Putin. Surprise, surprise. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, so he's officially identified the Antichrist. Um, And, you know, if we look at the background of this, okay, so the Russian Empire in many ways was formed by the arrival in the 9th century of the Orthodox Church. That's sort Mm -hmm. of where you date the beginning of the Russian Empire to. Before that, you know, the Russian Empire was many sort of different nations and peoples and so forth. And Putin is, to all intents and purposes, a devout Orthodox Christian. I don't know if I should put the word Christian in there, but mm-hmm. devout Orthodox. You know, he wears his uh, baptismal cross. He mm. dips himself in, you know, cuts a hole in the ice and dips himself for Epiphany every year, you mm. know, three times under the water, all that kind of thing that the uh, Russian Orthodox Church do. And so the Ukrainian Orthodox Church split off from the Russian Orthodox Church in 2019. Mm. So that's a little bit inflammatory right there because... Uh, if you are that devout in the Russian Orthodox Church and the Ukrainian Church just breaks away, particularly after you've had you know quite a number of years of war and conflict, you know the, the Russians have been there since 2014 mm. fighting a war. That's a bit inflammatory on the part of the Ukrainian uh, Church, and it's certainly going to create you know an increased uh, motivation for the Russians to go in and to retake the Orthodox Church. Now, what's interesting is that the Ukrainian Church, when it split off, it uh, created full communion with the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. So it's one of 23, but by by a very large margin, the far largest, but it's one of 23 Orthodox churches that are in full communion with Rome. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that means that, you know, once again, you've got the uh, Ukrainians looking west rather than east and distancing themselves from the east and becoming more western and uniting themselves with the Roman Catholic Church. Now, if you combine that together with uh, your Fatima visions, the visions of Fatima, 
Uh, we go back to 1916 when the visions of Fatima began. And back then in 1916, you find that, um, what was her name, Sister Lucia, who was one of the uh, three that had these visions, in one of these visions uh, she found that you know Mary called for the consecration of Russia to her immaculate heart. Okay. And just after Mary calls for the consecration of Russia to her immaculate heart, Lenin goes back to Russia, the Bolshevik Revolution breaks out, Lenin travels in a Vatican flagged train to Russia, is funded by the Vatican, the Bolsheviks are funded by the Vatican to take out the Orthodox Church, amongst other political aims. Mm-hmm. The Orthodox Church just happens to be the most wealthy institution just about on the face of the planet, and so they're able to buy the Bolsheviks out, who were peasants, mm. and uh, double-crossed the Vatican. And so there's been a push ever since then to bring the Russian Church back to the Immaculate Heart of Mary by the Catholic Church. Mm. Uh, Pope John Paul II was a big believer in the Fatima visions, and so he was heavily involved in what was called the Holy Alliance that brought yeah, down that's right. you know, brought down the whole communist system yeah. in the 1990s. Yeah. You know, it was, it was an alliance between the Vatican and the United States that pulled that off. Mm. Uh, working through Poland. And so when you understand the history, and I'm just giving like just a snippet of the history of the role of, you know, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, Hitler's Pope uh, in the Second World War um, made very strong statements in favour of Adolf Hitler when he invaded Russia. Why? Mm. Because the Orthodox Church was there and the Orthodox Church needed to be brought to heel by the West. Mm. And so we see the same kind of thing happening again uh, where you've got these religious issues that are creating conflict in the East. There's going to be a lot more that's going to develop out of that story as we move on. But we're going to move across to the United States right now and talk about Illinois University where they have just ordered a student to have no contact or indirect communication, no, no contact, no communication, or indirect communication with any students who disagree with her faith. So she's a Christian, mm-hmm. um, uh, Maggie Dijong. Uh, she's studying a master's in therapy counselling. Okay. And uh, she has um, you know, talked about her Christian viewpoint um, and that she believes in subjective truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, Obje- ob- I'm sorry, ob- objective truth yep. because of her of her Christianity, mm-hmm. and uh, there were three students that went to the university and said, you know, we feel unsafe because of her Christianity and her faith, and so the university basically slapped her with an AVO. <laughs> yeah, except they can't do that because they're not the police force. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so this is really interesting, mm. and you know. <laughs> They felt unsafe because of her Christian faith. They're not having these kind of discussions in the Ukraine, are they? Mm. You know, um, the reason that we have these kinds of discussions is because we are rich and increased with goods and in want of nothing and we're bored. Mm. Places that are in crisis are not worried about these kind of... But anyway, uh, the university said that her viewpoint was not welcome or appropriate. Uh, of course, this limits her speech and her physical presence on campus. The university acknowledged that her conduct did not violate any particular policy. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't list any policy that was violated. The orders were preemptive based on her faith. So it's like, yeah, we've got this Christian here. She hasn't done anything wrong, but she could. 
Because she's a Christian. Because she's a Christian, so we are going to slap her with an AVO. Yikes. An effective AVO. Uh, to quote, to prevent interactions that could be unwelcome, unquote. Wow. Not interactions that have been, but that could be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what happened to classrooms being a place where ideas are vigorously debated? Yeah. You know, that's what the classroom is. That's what universities are all about. That's what learning is all about. Uh-huh. That's what education is all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you cannot, if you cannot express an idea, you cannot understand an idea. Um, and so this, um, uh, yeah, yeah, because she'd stated that her personal beliefs were grounded in objective truth, and so there were a bunch of uh, number of students that went and complained about this, and of course this bans her from attending a whole bunch of her classes because mm. some of these other students are in those classes. Mm. Um, it bans her, bans her from online chat groups, etc. <laughs> so pretty wild stuff happening in a world where you have people with nothing better to do. Yeah, on, on one side of the world you've got like people's lives falling yes, apart. Yes, people wondering where their next meal is going to come from or whether they're going to cop a bullet today. Mm-hmm. And these students feel unsafe. <laughs> yeah, well. Because there's a Christian in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's, that's definitely like that's the, the line that, Christianity is walking in the university campus at the moment. Uh, it is. Uh, finally, very quickly, the phrase the United Methodist Megachurch mm-hmm. has just left the Methodist denomination. Okay. Which is interesting because it is part of a continued collapse of that denomination. Wow. Um, and it seems that it won't last probably through the next 10 to 20 years, Max, <laughs> under current projections. Wow. One of the greatest and longest denominations that have been around for a long time. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. It is The Breakfast Show here on Faith FM. Quiz question number three for 300 points. Lawson, what have you got? All right, for 300 points, how many wives did King Solomon have in addition to his 300 concubines? 0491-064-669. The answer is at least more than one, uh, which is at least too many. So 0491 is the number to call. For 300 points, you can win yourself a pocket sermon or get those points on the board and continue to work your way through the quiz. But yeah, guys, how many wives did uh, Solomon have in addition to his 300 concubines? All right. Uh-huh. Joining us on the phone right now is Tanya. Tanya, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Now, Tanya, you're a missionary in Uganda. You've been in Uganda for, well, a number of years now and have an yes. exciting project that you'd like to share with us. Tanya, how, how did you come to be uh, working and living in Uganda? Okay, so it started in 2007 where I initially went over to visit my sponsor child. I was living in Australia and had a well-paying job and... Um, was sponsoring a child in Kenya, and I love traveling, so I'm kind of known as a bit of a gypsy queen by all of my family. So at the end of every year, I would take off somewhere, and it would usually be a developing country because I loved just immersing myself in different cultures. And So, so you're the kind of person who likes to travel to countries where there's no air conditioning? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I don't like the malaria, but I don't mind the no air conditioning. So... Um, I decided at that time to take six weeks off at the end of the year and my boss approved it at the time and I went over to Kenya to see my sponsor child and I was there for two years, uh, sorry, two months and um, 
I stayed with the Maasai tribe uh, right up in the top of Kenya, the northern part of Kenya, and that was quite amazing and really surreal, actually. And then I did a couple of things like working orphanages and just... Uh, it was the first time I'd been to Africa and I was just absolutely shocked with the level of poverty and the level of distress people went through. And um, I remember one picture that's always stuck in my head. I was in a vehicle and there was a man uh, on the side of the road running and it's like a wheelbarrow that he had on his shoulder, but a very long one with wheels. And as he was running, his feet were kind of bleeding. And when I looked at my situation and looked at his situation, I thought, why are we so different? And um, I went back to Australia two months later and I just, I think I got bitten severely by the African bug and I kept thinking about what I could do to help the children. And that's how I progressed to deciding to do uh, teaching English as a second language and going over and teaching kids for free that didn't have school fees because that's a massive problem in Africa that children don't have money for school fees because their parents can't afford it. So I embarked on this one-year saving um, adventure and uh, and then to take off for another year and just go and serve selflessly and quit my job and did all of that. And that's where the Little Blue Shed started instead of the, the teaching. So that's okay, before we, get to, before we get to Little Blue Shed, just very quickly, um, yes. when you went to do English second language teaching, how long yes. ago was that? Because I think you were saying that you that, were there in 2007 yeah. visiting. Yeah, so 2007 I went for two months <coughs> and I came back with that bee in my bonnet and then for the next year I did the teaching English as a second language and right. so by 2010 I set off again for my uh, one-year journey. So it was three years before the first time I went and then when I went back was 2010. Yep, yep, absolutely, fantastic. Mm -hmm. So with the um, teaching English as a second language, uh, mm -hmm. You know, whenever we meet Africans here in Australia, they all they all seem to speak English probably better than better than, better English than the rest yeah. of us do. Uh, were you teaching that in Kenya or Uganda or a different country? Okay, so what happened was I initially set off to go to Kenya and teach English as a second language, but it never happened. I ended up working with women, um, so I started in Kibera Slum, which is a really big slum in Nairobi, Kenya. But I had a really tough time in Kenya being a single white female. And um, at this time, I was not a Christian. And so um, I wanted to come home, but I got encouraged by some friends to keep going. And I ended up in Uganda at that point. So the teaching in English as a second language did not happen at that time, but I bought sewing machines for women in this blue shed and we started a women training program. Okay, so you've been working on this little blue shed project uh, for quite a number of years now. How long have you lived in Uganda for? Um, I lived, I started to live there in 2015, so coming up to six years, and I've been back to Australia twice in that time. So that's so a rather, that's a, yeah. that's a rather large change. I mean, I've spent time in, uh, in a couple of different African countries, Lawson and, uh, I were most recently before COVID in Ethiopia. We even did the breakfast show here on Faith FM yeah. all the way from Ethiopia. And, you yeah. know, that's a major lifestyle change. Have you had to yeah. deal with a lot of, uh, culture shock, that kind of stuff in making a change yeah. that, that's big? Or is, or are you just the kind of yeah. person who just, loves it and immerses yourself in it and embraces it and uh, and goes with it. Yeah. Look, I think I God put me through a lot of training because I loved doing 
developing countries and I did Europe um, in my early 20s just with one bag on my back for one year. So I think, you know, I don't think God asks us to do anything that he hasn't trained us for. But so having said that, Africa is very different. We don't have washing machines or dishwashers. You have to, it's quite, and I was living in the rural area, so fetching water from the borehole, um, getting firewood to cook your meals and sleeping on the floor for the first year. The first year that I went over, I actually had a miracle happen and I prayed about it, but a man came to my door with the money of my air ticket and said, I've prayed and you need to go to Africa. So that's how I got back in 2015. So I went on a one-way ticket just with my suitcase, not knowing what to expect and stayed there for three years living in the rural environment with no money. So that was really life-changing because I had no money, no job. My family was in Australia. So there was a lot for me to adjust to. But at the same time, it was just really refreshing to live in situations where you go with the flow every day and you live off the off the ground, off the earth, like, you know, and you go and fetch your water and things like that. Although physically it was a bit... Um, taxing because was I was used to more of a soft life like uh, washing machines and fridges and things like that. So yes, the first year and a half was pretty hectic. Yeah, I imagine it would be. Now tell me, yes. Tanya, I think I heard you mention that the first time you went was before you were a Christian. So there must be a story there yes. somehow. Have you uh, how you came yeah. to give your life to Jesus? Yeah, so um, when I went, I was a non-Christian, but I just had this real desire to help and just this burden, this massive burden, especially when I went over. And, you know, I think God works with us so differently. And um, when I got back, as I said, for the next six months, I just had this stirring in my spirit, like, I need to do something about this. I can't just turn away from all of that suffering. And so um, I did... Um, when I went back to Uganda, I was still a no Christian. I wasn't a Christian. I started the little blue shed. I stayed there for a year and then I started to get the groups to send me products to Australia and I would sell them and then send them back money and that would help the women with school fees. And so kind of in a strange way, I was helping with educating children, but it was through the mothers rather than through TESOL. So as long as I could provide income generating activities and employment for the mums, the mums could then send their children to school. So um, I was doing that for about four years and I just had the most incredible, I guess, encounter with Jesus. I was really run down because I was doing it all on my own strength and there were about 80 women that I was helping. And uh, I went up Byron area because these products are all made from recycled paper and that sort of thing. So it was very much towards the Byron market. And that's where I had my encounter. I just basically had a massive breakdown um, because I was, I didn't know God and I didn't know that God carried our load. Mm. And, but I had this real desire to help. So in the middle of the bush in Byron Bay, I had a m- massive meltdown and I was in a caravan and I just got down on my knees. I didn't know who I was praying to. And I said, well, you know, you need to help me or you can just, I can, you can just take me as in, you know, I don't want to be here anymore because. I, I, at that time, I, I couldn't walk and I couldn't talk. And and so within a week, I had Christian people come into my life. And within another week of that, I was baptized. And within about two weeks of that is when that man came to the door and gave me the money for the air ticket. So all my time, I hadn't even opened the Bible that time. I just had this massive encounter. And then all of that time, um, 
uh, then pretty much, you know, within the month of being baptised, I was on an aeroplane to Uganda. And then for the next three years, I had a lot of addictions and things. And the Lord really took me into rural Uganda and started to work with on me for the first three years, mm. on me, getting rid of my addictions, getting rid of my... Um, you know, just all the things that the Lord prunes away from us, just preparing me for my calling. So it was quite, and then, you know, removing me from Australia was a big part because I had no one to rely on but God. I had no money. I had no family. I had no job. And so my relationship with Jesus in those three years grew massively because um, I had nobody else to turn to. And, you know, I think that was all to do with the way that, you know, my calling was, I guess. Um, at times it was very scary and um, I felt like running back home because it felt so, I felt so vulnerable to everything. Um, but God led me through and, you know, three years later he opened the ministry doors again. So as a non-believer, I put the little blue shed down on the altar for the three years while he was you, you know, God is so amazing. He wants to, he wants us to get right. He wants to, you know, he wants us to be healthy and whole. And so that was that three year period of taking you really into the wilderness, which was the village and working upon me. And then three years later, he started to open up the doors and I started to work with women in, in rural Uganda. So amazing so story. Miracles. Yeah, we had, I had many miracles. Like God is, definitely a provider because when you move out of your comfort zone you see God's hand and I never went one day without food or one day without shelter yeah. You know, when I listen to that story, I see parallels with the story of uh, of Paul who has a whirlwind experience with Jesus Christ, gets launched into missionary service, yeah. spends three years out yeah. in, the, in, in the desert in Arabia, you know, readjusting yeah. himself, getting everything out of his life that he needs to to prepare himself for a life of ministry. So I think you can yeah. take courage from that. Um, Tanya, we want to hear all about the Little Blue Shed and what okay. you are doing with the Little Blue Shed. Tell us all about sure. this project. Okay, so Little Blue Shed started in a blue shed, and that was in 2010. I had money that I had saved up, and when I ended up in a little town called Ginger, which is a little touristy town in Uganda, I stumbled across a little village, and there was a blue shed. Um, and if you visit the website, you'll see the pictures of the ladies in the blue shed. And Mama, who was sitting behind the in the blue shed, she had one sewing machine. And I really wanted to just, um, my idea, I had no idea about God or what he was doing in my life, but my idea was, right, I'm going to choose a project, help them buy some equipment, hang out with them for a year, and then go back to my safety zone, which is Australia. So the ladies asked me, well, could you buy us more sewing machines because there's few of us? And I said, yes, no problem. So in that village, we extended the shed and we went and got more sewing machines. And I was just sitting in the village one day and I thought, how cute, it's a little blue shed. And that name kind of stuck with me. Um, and so that's where it started. And then we started, that area got flooded out. Um, and we started a little shop in Ginger Town where more and more women come. So it was a safe place where women could learn skills. Um, at the time, I didn't know the Bible, but a big part of it now is my is Bible teaching, spiritual teaching, prayer, and one-on-one counselling. But there's a lot of women and girls in Uganda that don't have the opportunity to make an income. Um, their parents uh, don't have the money, and so they get sent away from home very young or early marriages. 
Um, and then, you know, the evils of the world such as prostitution and trafficking then becomes an option because there's no opportunity for these girls and women. So the Little Blue Shed, what I found was that that exploitation is coming from poverty and lack of opportunity and lack of education. So the Little Blue Shed is about education, empowerment and employment um, to eradicate poverty. So women have freedom of choice to make um, when it comes to themselves and their families. So it's a platform for growth and there's it's holistic. So um, there's the income generating side. So we make, um, you know, jewellery, we make bags, we make shoes. It's fashion and decor. Um, and then we have the spiritual side, which is our Bible study. Very important for these women to know who they are and that God loves them and they're not forgotten. Mm. Because um, a lot of women think, oh, well, we're out here. And it's so funny where I ended up because most women were like, oh, I thought God forgot about me. When I go to visit them and do my little group, you know, just encourage them and get them to start a savings plan together as a group and then a business idea. Um, most of the women, women would say to me, well, I thought, you know, God forgot about me. And I said, no, no. So, you know, part of that mission work was me being Jesus's feet and hands and feet and just reassuring that they're not forgotten, they are loved. And um, and then the other side is the emotional, which is the counselling, a lot of trauma, lots and lots of trauma. There's a lot of domestic violence. Um, there's a lot of polygamy. So, you know, they're, they're one of four wives. And so there's a lot of um, hurt and pain that comes with that. And generally African women don't really open up and talk. So to create a safe space for them to be able to talk and heal is really important. And then offering them the income generating activity, which gives the, um, the final, the, the financial freedom. Cause a lot of women stay trapped in situations that they, they don't want. Um, they can't stand, but they can't get out of it because they don't have any financial freedom. Yeah, this is fantastic. And the thing I love about what you're doing is that you are teaching them to fish rather than giving them a fish, you know, that whole yeah. analogy right there, you are actually bringing, you know, uh, life changing. And I think you need to change the name of it from Little Blue Shed to Big Blue Shed because it sounds like a pretty big <laughs> ministry to me. But uh, if yeah. you want to know more about the Little Blue Shed, you go to littlebluesshed.info. Is that correct address? Yeah. Yep, littlebluesshed.info, little blue and you can read all about the amazing work that Tanya is doing there. So I'd encourage all of our listeners to go over there. There's a lot of needs that you can help out with. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.